Hi there. This is a quick message to let our listeners know that this podcast is general financial advice only, meaning it is not specific to you, your needs, goals or objectives. So don't act on this information until you've spoken to your professional financial advisor. You'll find our full disclaimer linked to our financial services guide and website in the show notes. Hello and welcome to Munro Partners Invest in the Journey podcast. My name is Chris Conway and I'm the Managing Editor of Livewire Markets and it is my privilege to be participating as a guest host today. I am joined by Partner and Portfolio Manager James DeSindis and Partner and Portfolio Manager Kieran Moore for their take on the recent US earnings season, some of the major themes as well as the key results. Gents, great to be here with you today. Thanks for having us, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Let's dive right in as there's plenty to cover. I wanted to start with a broad view. The season has been characterised as better than feared. Is that because the bar was set so low or companies have actually been outperforming? James, we'll start with you. Yeah, maybe a bit of both. Obviously, it's been a worrying sort of 12, 18 months for a lot of market participants and we've had five percentage points of rate hikes and the market's basically worrying about when that's going to hit and actually show up. And then on top of that, obviously, we're sort of getting these questions as to whether they've actually gone ahead and broken something with what we've seen, obviously, with the regional banks. We've obviously seen a couple of failures seen big moves down in some of the regional bank share prices and obviously concerns about what that means for the access to credit and so forth for, for US companies and US consumers um, and what the knock-on effects be from that. So obviously in, um, in Q1, as you say, we sort of jumped over that lowered bar or those sort of concerns. You know, people were talking about some soft data in sort of March, April coming through, but it looks like actually April stabilised from sort of listening to some of the companies and it actually didn't get worse. So Hence the company sort of beat that sort of lowered bar. So, and then we obviously saw some idiosyncratic areas of, of strength, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about with, you know, particularly obviously in tech. One quick follow-up question, James. Do you think it can continue into the next quarter? Yeah, that's a million dollar question. To be to be advised, I mean, we see a likelihood of two, two paths here, a soft landing path where, you know, you've got the tailwinds from the Chinese reopening, uh, the consumers coming back to the US and Europe got reshoring back to the US and you've got sort of green energy transition um, that would sort of help companies and the economy more so perform that sort of soft landing feat. Potentially we are on a hard landing trajectory. Uh, obviously the, the key the key question mark being these banks, um, does something actually break here? How many times can sort of JP Moore sort of step in and rescue someone? So, so um, and then obviously we have some other issues with, you know, government debt and things like that at the moment. So, to be, to be advised, but for us, you know, that's at least the second situation is something we can sort of hedge against to some degree. And also, you know, a lot of the really good companies, structural growth companies out there can grow regardless. So um, we're sort of less concerned ourselves. Nice one. Thank you. Let's dive into some more specific themes, sectors and stocks. We'll start with big cap tech more broadly. There's been a notable cloud slowdown for the big cap tech companies recently. Did this continue in Q1 and what were the outlooks for the companies in Q2? Kieran, we'll go to you. Yeah, so it's a good question, Chris. I mean, it's really been a perfect storm for the big cap tech guys over the last sort of 12 to 18 months. You know, we've seen a digital advertising slowdown at Google. Um, we've seen e-commerce slow down in the post-COVID era at Amazon. Uh, and then we all, we've obviously seen the cloud slow down. So on the two former areas, you know, digital, um, digital advertising actually accelerated again a little bit in the quarter. So that was a sequential improvement. Um, we saw a sequential improvement in e-commerce as well, which was pleasing to see because... Q1 is typically a slow quarter in e-commerce after you have that big seasonal effect in around the Christmas period. The, the obvious part or, or the key risk for these guys is on the cloud slowdown, as you pointed out. And so what we saw in the, in the quarter is that, you know, that cloud slowdown is, is actually continuing. And 
And when we talk about slowdown, we're actually, we're actually referring to an optimization process that the companies are calling out. And that's corporates all around the world really rationalizing their, their budgets and, and rationalizing how they're spending on cloud computing. So Amazon called out, you know, there was another 500 basis points of deceleration expected in their Q2 guide. And so the quarter that came in at sort of mid-teens growth rate year on year, and that compares to sort of a plus 30% growth rate that we've seen only sort of five or six quarters ago. So a pretty meaningful deceleration. Uh, Microsoft was slightly more positive actually. So they were, you know, a little bit more upbeat about their outlook. Their Azure business actually slowed in terms of the, or the deceleration, I mean, slowed quarter on quarter. Uh, and they effectively called out, you know, they're starting to see an end or, or an end progressing in terms of the optimization spend. Kieran, you just talked there about the, the top line angle. Uh, let's talk about bottom line. How are their cost cutting plans going? Yeah, so this is really important from an earnings point of view, which is um, what we focus on typically day in, day out. I think if you look at the big cap tech companies, their earnings are improving quarter on quarter. So what we were hoping to see going into the quarter was that sequential improvement in margins. So at Google, for example, they've done a lot of cost cutting. They've reorganised some of their costs and, and reported slightly different segments as a result of that. And if you back all that out, you can actually see a sequential improvement in their core search or their core advertising part of the business from a margin point of view. The other pleasing thing to see with Google, with, with Alphabet, is actually the first quarter of profitability in their cloud business. So we're actually really pleased to see the margins progressing in that business. Uh, Amazon was also positive. So they are actually, they're actually the second largest retailer in the world, but they've been losing money in that business for sort of six quarters in a row now. Uh, and that's returning to profitability in, in Q1. And, and we hope that continues into Q2 as well as per their guide. Kieran, the million dollar question, are the glory days for tech over or can they return to their previous heights? Absolutely not, Chris. We're, we're still big believers in the big cap tech. I mean, these are some of the biggest, you know, most um, resilient business models in the world. They've got some of the best competitive positioning. Uh, they've got really strong balance sheets, so a lot of the cash on the balance sheets. And they trade at pretty attractive valuation multiples compared to the broader market. So, so definitely not over in the short term. I'm sure the listeners will be very happy to hear that. Um, Kieran, one more before we switch back to James. AI. There's lots going on in this space at the moment. I know Munro's all over it. What are you seeing in the space and what are the standout stocks? Yeah. So as a growth investor, what we've always done over the years or over the journey is really focus on the enablers of these structural changes in the world. So if you think about, you know, the shift towards digital payments, we invested in the, the enablers of that and in Visa MasterCard. The shift towards decarbonisation in the world, what we're doing is focusing on the enablers. And really AI is no different. So we recognise that there's a structural shift in, in the way corporates want to deploy AI in their everyday processes around the world. And what we've got to do is work out who are the companies enabling that shift to occur. And so first and foremost, we focused on the semiconductor industry. So we think the semiconductor industry is going to go to a trillion dollars over the next 10 years. What it's done over the last 50 years is build up roughly half a trillion dollars in value through you know the PC era, the mobile era. Uh, and then the mainframe era back in the sort of 70s and 80s. And so we think it's going to a trillion dollars. So the market's going to double in size only over the next 10 years, which is pretty exciting. Um, and that's really driven by this, this proliferation of AI. So all those corporates out there that want to deploy AI into their everyday processes. You know, if you think about Netflix recommending your shows, if you think about things like autonomous driving, if you think about even simple things like Wendy's or McDonald's in your ordering processes at quick service restaurants, believe it or not. All, all these corporates want to deploy AI. And so companies like NVIDIA, companies like TSMC, which make the semiconductor chips, companies like ASML, which has a monopoly over the lithography tool, 
um, used in that chip manufacturing process, those are all companies that we think play a critical role in, in this AI proliferation. The other beneficiaries that we see today are really the cloud computing guys, so the big cloud infrastructure players, um, because ultimately you're going to need a lot of compute power to host all these AI software applications. So that's uh, Azure at Microsoft, that's AWS and Amazon, and that's GCP at Google. Massive opportunity, no doubt. James, let's uh, turn to you. Let's talk uh, Tesla. Company has been cutting prices in order to maintain market share. Margins last time out were 19% versus expectations of 21%. What do you make of the strategy, mate? Is it sustainable? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, we've obviously spoken to Tesla a lot or we speak to them very regularly and and obviously they did tell us the 20% gross margin was going to be the floor and uh, they've obviously dipped below that. Short term, it's obviously negative for their earnings. It's negative for the industry, I suppose, to um, you know, compete against uh, a company that's cutting price like that. But medium to longer term, we think it's absolutely the right thing for them to be doing. The EV penetration curve at the moment is actually in that steepening phase. So, you know, we're 30% of all new sales in China are now EV. Europe's lagging that sort of 20% or so and, and you know, US is lagging that at 10 but sort of globally, we're sort of passing that teens in penetration point, and that's where you usually get that steep inflection in sales. And so clearly, Tesla's cutting price because of weakening environment, uh, demand environment. I think Elon Musk is obviously on record as believing that there is a, a recession coming, um, and so he's basically getting ahead of that and ensuring that um, you know they're at the right price point um, for that weakening environment. Obviously, financing costs are up a lot as well. So um, you know he's absolutely doing the right thing longer term for the company to try to hold old share but it's certainly negative for um for his competitors as well as obviously the share price in the in the very short term but but medium to long term the right thing to do gents let's shift gears a little bit let's talk china's reopening it's been fantastic for the australian economy of course as well as the global economy what impact is it having having particularly in the travel and payment spaces yeah it's it's obviously a real positive for um the payments companies which we own visa mastercard as for a long period of time now so those companies have been very resilient all the way through sort of COVID really um, for the most part with their earnings. Um, but they were not getting that final piece of earnings back from, from COVID, which was the effect of basically international travel and particularly the Chinese tourist or, or business traveller going back to Europe and, and the US. And um, you know, China sort of reopened domestically now after obviously their hard lockdowns over Christmas, and you know, which is great, but we really haven't seen the flights fully resume uh, globally. So there's still a little bit more to go for these these payments companies to get back uh, their, their missed earnings. And we, we actually think that you know, as that sort of reopens, cross-border travel is really profitable for these, these companies. So that actually should offset any, uh, any deterioration in the US consumer. So, you know, we expect Visa MasterCard to continue to sort of deliver that sort of 15 to 20% EPS growth that they've been, been delivering very consistently now for the last decade. So that's certainly a positive for those stocks. Obviously, the travel side's a bit different. We own here Airbus. Clearly, China's a key market for the um, aircraft sector. Um, it's a very large market. Globally, you know, retirements are very, very low uh, for the last several years because there are these so supply chain problems. Um, and so airlines have been flying older fleets for longer than I'm sure they'd like. There's obviously a cost on carbon as well. The fuel bill's obviously higher for an older aircraft. So at the same time as we've had these supply chain problems, you know, we've got China coming back now. Um, and so the, we, we would expect a lot of orders to be placed with Boeing and Airbus from China, as well as obviously the, the, the global retirements to start to occur from the, uh, you know, US and European carriers. So, you know, the, the, the demand backdrop looks really, really good for, for these, these uh, companies. So, um, you know, our, our favoured investments, Airbus, Boeing's obviously had a lot of 
company specific problems. So they need to ramp up from a much lower base. But you know, even Airbus, you know, has had their share of supply chain problems as well, and they're only just really starting to work through them now. Yeah, we'd expect uh, deliveries to start to inflect higher, and uh, and obviously their uh, their earnings to uh, follow suit. So it's very positive. Let's talk a bit further up the value chain, James, in terms of luxury goods, knowing, of course, that China has a burgeoning middle class and upper class. What are you seeing in that space? Yeah, so we like luxury goods stocks. Look, just simple stat is China's sales or the Chinese consumers' sales from the luxury companies like Louis Vuitton and and Richemont going back to sort of normal, not even above normal levels, um, i.e. they they potentially could go higher than than, than prior COVID levels. Their their, their sales actually should go 8% higher. So... Yeah, we actually see the street numbers as being too low and, and, and obviously as China reopens it, the street will upgrade their numbers. So, um, yeah, we're positive on the on the sector as well for similar reasons that we, uh, we've, we've just spoken about with regard to reopening. Fantastic. Let's pivot to healthcare. Companies performed generally pretty well throughout the season. Healthcare as a sector saw the largest increases in revenue of any sector in the quarter. Kieran, what are some of the stocks that you like in the space and why? Yeah, so we actually really like the obesity opportunity uh, within healthcare. So if you look at the obesity market globally, you know, we think there's roughly 650 million people that suffer from obesity, which is actually a chronic condition. Um, But if you look at the penetration of pharmaceuticals within that 650 million people, it's actually only about 2% that actually get treated with pharmaceuticals. And so I don't think it's a bold assumption, Chris, that, you know, that 2% over time could go to 4 to 5 to potentially even 10 and so if we can find companies that can benefit from the, that structural change or that S-curve, then, you know, that should present a really great earnings runway ahead. So we've invested in Nova Nordisk in Denmark uh, and Eli Lilly in the US, both of which reported really strong results, both of which have a what's called a GLP-1 drug, which is actually a, a glucagon-like peptide. It's been around for a long time in the treatment of diabetes but what it does, it, it has the effect of being able to reduce a person's weight by sort of 15 to 20%, um, depending on the dosage and depending on the person, obviously. So those drugs play directly into this obesity opportunity. So we really like that opportunity at the moment. We think we're right at the start of that opportunity. It could be a big one in years to come. Kieran, just very quickly, what are some of the reasons why the penetration hasn't been deeper? It's only 2% so far. You're talking about maybe 10%? Yeah, so so clearly these drugs have been around for treatment of diabetes. Now they need to be approved by the FDA in the right. US and other bodies to actually be a treatment for obesity in particular. Um, so they need to be firstly approved, um, which they're in the process of being, being done at the moment, and then obviously they need to be covered by uh, insurance bodies around the world to make them affordable for individuals to actually administer and approve. Right. Um, With those names that you mentioned, Eli Lilly, Novo Nordisk, was the growth that you saw in the last quarter enough to satisfy the high multiples that these stocks trade on? Yeah, it's a good question. They are very high multiple stocks, so typically quite defensive businesses, healthcare, and and why they justify that sort of premium valuation. I think if you look at the long-term opportunity in obesity here, we think in the long term this could be a $50 billion market. And the way these stocks have been historically trading in the last sort of 12 months or so is really on the script data for these obesity drugs and, and how those scripts have been taken off as you as you get this drug out there in the market. And so what's happening now is that that script data, that acceleration in the scripts we're seeing, is actually translating into revenue dollars for these companies. So the pricing is improving and also the coverage is improving around the world too. So that's actually translating into proper P&L for these companies. Uh, and so Novo Nordisk, we saw them positively pre-announce for their quarter so the company was actually expecting a mid-teens growth rate for the year, pre-announced basically two weeks before their scheduled result and, and delivered a sort of 20 to 4 to 30% outlook for the year. 
Uh, and what's really impressive about that is that that's almost a $300 billion company beating earnings expectations by a pretty significant amount. And for us, what the more pleasing thing about that was that the company actually said there's only about half a million people using this drug today. So, you know, that reinforces the fact that despite the stock is being expensive and, and despite the stock having run, you know, there's still a long runway ahead for earnings growth in this case. So, yes, the stock's both reported really good results, particularly around this obesity opportunity and, and delivered versus their multiples. Let's talk the Inflation Reduction Act and the $370 billion US dollars that will be spent over the next decade on decarbonisation. Obviously a big focus for Munro and for you, James. We're almost 12 months in. What, if anything, is happening on the ground? Yeah, so um, July last year we obviously got a big pop in some of these share prices on the back of the IRA, which, which wasn't expected. Um, basically a climate bill that Biden got through there. Um, and since then it's sort of been tracking sideways because we haven't sort of seen the orders start to flow in a material way yet. You've obviously had a lot of battery plant announcements in the US to sort of follow this expected EV penetration curve up. But outside of that, it's been somewhat limited thus far. And we think the reason for that is some of the actual details are yet to be disclosed or ironed out. Interestingly, it's starting to now feed through. So just on Friday night, actually, we had a um, announcement regarding the credits and basically what you need to do to claim the credit. Um, and this one in particular is around domestic content. So for example, if you're standing up a wind farm to get the credit, you know, how much of the panel needs to be made or assembled in the US or a, or a friendly country. And so as these sort of details are ironed out, we'd expect these announcements to accelerate. Um, and you'll start to see that in the backlog of the companies as, as they basically take these orders in. So very much, you know, corporates being conservative and not sort of going ahead with projects until they have basically every detail, which is which is obviously totally fair enough. As I say, we have seen some projects go ahead anyway because the IRA in our view is a, is a game changer um, and some companies are like, okay, let's get ahead of the queue here and just just deploy and deploy capital and, and basically uh, get these projects going. Most of the companies have been quite conservative and, and certainly companies haven't been raising their guidance on the back of the IRA because they aren't exactly sure of the details. So, you know, as I say, the domestic content piece Friday night's an important one because basically as a developer you need to know how much domestic content you need to get the credit otherwise you know clearly you're not going to go ahead with the project so um it's starting to build now Chris. So just on that James just to clarify regulation can kill just about anything so you guys are still very confident the regulation will be sorted out it's been a bit of a slow process to this point but ultimately this is still money that's going to be spent. Yeah absolutely absolutely this particular stuff's more around the tax side and the IRS um, we do see um, very low likelihood that the IRA would ever be repealed. It's just too good for a lot of the economy, um, a lot of companies. So, you know, Republicans, it's not really in their interest to kill it. You know, politically they might talk down renewables and talk up fossil fuels, but reality is a lot of these projects are actually occurring in, in key Republican states, be it Texas, Florida, et cetera, because that's where the natural resources are. Right. Thank you. All right. Let's round out some, with some stock specifics. First up, Flutter Entertainment, global sports betting provider. Such a competitive space, Kieran, um, yet Flutter managed to deliver some cracking results, revenue up 54% and a big jump in the number of average monthly players. What are they doing so well? How are they competing so well? Yeah, so this is one of those, another one of those really underpenetrated opportunities. So if you look at the US opportunity in particular, the online sports betting and online gaming market, we think could be about a $40 billion opportunity in 2030 um, with not even all states being approved or legalised for online gaming and online sports betting yet. Uh, so it's a massive TAM. It's growing really quickly and Flutter effectively has the leading share in the US market. So they've got about a 50% share as reported at their recent result and, and so they're in the box seat to sort of capture on this growth. 
Uh, as you mentioned, their US business um, grew really strongly in the quarter. So the US revenues were up over 100%. Um, they're actually having some really good success in the legalization of other markets around the world as well. So if you think about places like Turkey was a really strong market for them. Um, places like India is a really strong market for them. And then there's other opportunities in sort of LATAM and Brazil and, and things like that. So yeah, we, we really like this business. Um, it's got a long runway of earnings growth ahead. And and what they're doing well, Chris, really is it, is if you think about, you know, the way technology works in online sports betting, um, how easy it is to use your sports bet app, what sort of consumer interface it has, um, how they manage risk and how they price for that risk. That's really what they're getting right. And, and really what they've demonstrated in other markets around the world, like Australia and like the UK, is that they can do this at a really, really profitable scale. Um, so over time, as this business, particularly in the US, grows, they should make really, really good margins out of this business. And, and we think they've got a really strong earnings profile ahead. So yeah, it's one we really like. Is there any chance that the money that they have to expend acquiring a customer can kill the model? It sounds like they're just way more efficient than most of their competitors. Yeah, so what they've shown, and, and it's a really interesting stat, it's a really interesting question that you raise, and what they've shown at their US-specific capital markets day that they did late last year, and I'd encourage anyone to have a look if they're interested, is that they showed the hockey stick of profitability once they bring on or onboard their initial customer base they don't actually have to spend as much to onboard mm-hmm. a customer or acquire a customer. And then as they can show throughout the short-term life of that customer, once they're onboarded, they actually translate into a profitable customer really quickly. Uh, so it's really that scale and that ability to price and that ability to use technology that gets them up the profitability curve really quickly. Fantastic. Last but not least, Liberty Media. I'm an, a huge F1 fan. Uh, we're not far from the track down here in Melbourne. Um, the F1 season is off to a cracking start. and It seems Formula One's revenues are also racing up 6% in the quarter to $381 million. James, what's the thesis with F1 and can they maintain the revenue and earnings momentum? Yeah, so it sounds like we don't need to convince you, Chris. But, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, the F1 product is obviously a good one and it's and it's very much underpenetrated in, in the US. So that's, that's the key story in our view uh, here. So... Um, you know, we're going to come up to a, a period now where the F1 and the TV companies start to negotiate their next deal, TV deal. Um, currently, they make only 85 million bucks out of the US. The NFL's 10 billion, so it's less than one percent of the of the deal. Clearly, the NFL's a massive sport, and you know the, the F1's not going to get there overnight. But but certainly, we see a lot of upside to the next deal in the in the US in particular. The other place we think that they're going to continue to accelerate is actually in the licensing fees that they get from each venue. So, you know, down here at Albert Park, you know, they get something like $20, $30 million out of the Victorian government for the right to host that race, to license the race to the Victorian government. Victorian government takes obviously all the risk on the tickets and the construction of the track and so forth. So it's a low risk model for F1, uh, but we actually think there's opportunity for them to actually increase some of their risks by taking on some of the promoter risks. We actually think that's a reasonable thing for them to do because of the increase in the popularity of the sport. So we obviously know how hard tickets are to get hold of. Um, you know, obviously Melbourne was sold out very quickly, but obviously the popularity of the sport is growing globally. So, yeah, we see opportunity for them to actually be able to take more of the economics from that sort of local partner. Um, we think a big catalyst for the stock is actually in November this year. So they're going to host their first race in Las Vegas. And this is the first race that they've taken that motor risk on everywhere else it is outsourced to the, um, the local partner be it Victorian government or, or someone else um, and we think they're going to make about 80 million 80 to 100 million on this race um, so you put that in perspective relative to Melbourne you know it's, it's potentially sort of three 
two or three X on that. Um, and there are a lot of races around the world where they're not getting the types of dollars that they're getting in Melbourne. A lot of the European races are very, very low revenue per race as well. So, you know, it's probably going to put some pressure on those European races to actually keep their their um, their slot basically. So that's the other big catalyst that we see for, for the sport. This uh, this company is pretty unique. It's it's the actual, you know, it's actually owning a sport. You can buy other companies in the sports space, but they're generally teams. Teams can be a tougher place to invest because, you know, if you look at like Manchester United, it's a listed company, you know, it has struggled on the pitch relative to its history because it's got other competitors like Man City, et cetera, that are just happy to spend and spend and spend because they're owned by deep pocket investor, like in that case, you know, Middle Eastern interests. Similar thing in the US, you can buy sports, but a lot of the uh, sort of economics actually end up accruing to the players. F1's a little bit different in that because they run the sport, they can basically make up the rules, um, obviously with consultation with the teams, and, and they can basically ensure that the, the product is a good product uh, by making it exciting, but also they can deal with the teams a little bit differently as opposed to, to you know, the player situation I just spoke about with the basketball teams. Um, and so we think, um, you know, we think that puts them in a pretty good position. The, t- the value of the teams are growing. The value of the sport's growing, so the teams are happy, and so therefore F1 can actually take more of the economics over time in, in our view. So um, that's why we really like the stock and, yeah, we think there's a, a good future ahead for it. Just very quickly, I heard them talking recently about expanding the season as well with more race events. Undoubtedly, that would be a catalyst for further earnings as well. It would be, although a little bit uh, capped in this case because some of the uh, some of the teams will actually struggle to do it. Sure. What, what, what they can potentially do is actually add more teams and, and they're under those in those discussions at the moment. As I said, the, the US is really the big needle mover and, and obviously we're getting the third US race this year, so that'll be, that'll be a positive. I think they're, um, they're capped at 25 races and this year there's going to be 23. So there's potentially a little bit of upside there, but um, probably more about sort of, you know, maybe bringing that extra team on. It would be great if they had sort of a big nameplate US brand as well and a, you know, a successful US driver. You know, that, that could potentially accelerate the, uh, the growth market as well so um yeah we still think there's enough upside there across sort of various number of uh opportunities for the company fantastic well that's all we have time for today gents kieran james thanks for joining the munro invest in the journey podcast to talk q1 us earnings season thanks Thanks, chris